Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. On today's episode, we speak to Dr. Sanal Patel, a neonatologist who has started her own niche practice conducting neonatal home visits. She gives us some networking pearls that she found to be critical to her success in her new practice. And then we segue into breastfeeding and discuss how we can best support our patients and colleagues. And she gives us some great online resources. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sonal Patel, a neonatologist who actually has her own niche practice where she visits uh, mothers and their newborns at home right after they've left the hospital. It, it seems that there was this empty space where uh, it was really challenging in, the, in those first few days to actually get out of the house, pack the baby up. They're in such a fragile state, especially if you had a C-section, get them to the doctor's office that she, she was witnessing this and decided to start a practice to fill that niche. So we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about how she started this practice and the lessons she's learned, but also what she wants every doctor to know about breastfeeding and the circumstances in which she's seen this take place and, and what someone like me, an otolaryngologist or say an orthopedic surgeon, would need to know about and consider about breastfeeding. So Dr. Patel, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for giving me a platform to voice the breastfeeding issue. <laughs> oh. So first, where did you do your where did you go to med school? Where did you do your training? So um, I am from Omaha, Nebraska, and um, I went to med school at University of Nebraska Medical Center. Thereafter, myself and my husband, couples matched, and we ended up down at, uh, I ended up in LSU, uh, Children's New Orleans, and my husband is an orthopedist, so he ended up down at Oshner. And I started my NICU fellowship at LSU. However, my husband got a trauma fellowship at Harvard, so we moved up to Boston, where I completed my NICU fellowship at Tufts, and he actually led, thereafter, he led the job search, and my only criteria for him was my parents and my brother live in Nebraska, and I wanted a direct flight there. That was my only thing. How many cities did he get to choose from where there are direct flights from Omaha, Nebraska? Yes, it's actually not that bad. So Atlanta is one of them. so it was Atlanta, St. Louis, and Denver were the top three. So, you get St. to Louis find a job in one of that's like that's like applying for an academic job when you're in a very small specialty. There are like three cities to choose from in the whole country. So, well, I'm 
I followed him to Boston. So this was my only criteria for him. And I knew he was going to be leading the job search because I knew I was going to go part-time. I thought it was like a nice compromise, let's say. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, definitely a reasonable compromise. Because <laughs> the thing was, at this time, I already had my first child. And I, whenever I had to go home to Nebraska, there was always a layover. And some of those layovers, as time went on, got shorter and shorter. Like it was 20 minutes or 30 minutes and running through, I just remember running through Chicago's airport with a toddler is very challenging. And, um, oh, and it's massive. Yes. And it was ridiculous. So that was my only criteria. It's like, I just need a direct flight home. (laughs) That's all I need. So, um, so we ended up in Denver and for a majority of my time here so far for seven and a half to eight years, I practiced, um, NICU at Denver Health. Um, And then uh, around actually working in the ICU, I ended up having three of my own kids even more. So now I'm a mom of four beautiful boys who are challenged me every day, I would say. But it actually also inspired me to look at postpartum care in the United States. And that's what led me to developing my own clinic. So what had happened was my when my fourth was born, at this time, he actually came due to some medical issues that I was facing with him. He came in earlier than anticipated, and all my support system um, wasn't available. So my mom's also a physician, so she usually would take two weeks off to come and um, be with me, and then my mother-in-law would follow. But in both instances, they would take time off of work to do that. So we found ourselves in a position where my husband couldn't take time off because he had already, he's a trauma ortho surgeon, so he could take a couple days off. Um, But other than that, we were in between nannies. Very long story, but what ended up happening is I didn't have any help. So I found myself um, going to my newborn appointment. So traditionally what happens, you deliver a baby. And two to three days after that, you're told, after you get discharged from the hospital, you're told to come back to the pediatrician's office. And here it was snowing, but in Denver, even if you get like a foot of snow, school's still open. So schools were still open and I found myself making sure that my boys had their lunches and drive them to school. While then I was in charge of also taking my newborn to the appointment. And mind you, it's still snowing. I get to the appointment and did you, did you shovel the driveway too? That sounds like that should have been on that list. It's it, making it my head was. spin. Just <laughs> about it. Really? <laughs> it was. Cause at this time, like by the time they went to school it was eight 30, my husband had already left at six cause it was a surgical day. And I'm not kidding you. It, it, it was one of those things that I think everything aligned for me to realize this kind of sucks. And what are we doing? You know, like it's something had to be pushed me over. So I go to this appointment, and first of all, um, I don't fault the pediatricians at all because this is the system that's been created that you have 10 to 15 minutes with them. Um, And in my case, this I didn't actually have a pediatrician; I had a nurse practitioner. And within 10 to 15 minutes, they had checked out if my baby was jaundiced or not by just putting a little. uh, monitor on his head. That's what they, that's a Billy monitor that you can quickly do. 
and asked me how breastfeeding was going. And I was like, great. And they were like, okay, we're done. We're good. Go back. And that whole ordeal just for that 15 minute appointment, it, it literally took me four hours because I had pumped before I had nursed before I had to make sure all my kids were done. And then actually I spent a little time. I remember in the, um, in my car, nursing because now it's time to nurse again before I could drive back home and I came home exhausted and I was like my husband and I I looked at him and I was like this is ridiculous all I needed was a weight check and someone to check jaundice and I had to do that and here's the big caveat I had just delivered a baby <laughs> you know this wasn't like I had a one-month baby or a two-month baby I had just delivered a baby. Actually, my contractor and obviously everything opens at once. We had to get some work done in the house. And he looked at me and he goes, you just had a baby. And I go, I know. <laughs> so, I mean, those are the circumstances that moms do. And you I could use your back. little food scale in the kitchen to weigh exactly. them and then just emailed them the results. Exactly. Actually, an interesting side note in one of my newest, um, one of my patients that I recently had through my business, which we'll talk about in a minute, she actually had her mom was there with her little puppy. And she goes, do you mind if I just use the baby scale? Because the veterinarian just wants to wait and I don't want to go out. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> sure. So, I mean, it was, it was just for weight check. And what I realized, like I said, I have four kids. I have four different deliveries. And one of them was a C-section. And I still remember going after two to three days, going with my baby after my C-section. And mind you, C-section is as abdominal surgery. It's not, let's just kind of put in the context it is. They cut you open and it's abdominal surgery. If you've had abdominal surgery any other time in your life, they would restrict you for bed rest and they would also restrict you for weight, right? Like don't pick up more than five pounds. But in most cases, when you're actually having a C-section, they're especially a term baby, it's because the baby's too big. And so now I have an eight pounder that I have to pick up and nurse at the same time I have to, do you see all of this? <laughs> like, yeah. It's the biggest, like, what are we doing? So fast forward was creating, was looking at it, came back home and said, there has to be a better way and started exploring what, how could it have just been simple? I just needed a weight check. And then within the state of Colorado, um, and it's now more nationally, one of the biggest challenges in our field was when a baby went home and the ductus closed, that could potentially um, give that baby some hidden heart lesions that were not, that were ductal dependent. And then the baby comes back in cardiac shock. So that was like one of the biggest fears. However, especially in Colorado and in other states, there's a state law now that you have to have a congenital heart screening done, i.e. a pulse ox test before the baby goes home. So now through a lens of the NICU, what are we sending home? Well, we're sending pretty much healthy babies who need to be breastfed when you look at the data, the majority of readmissions in the first month are because of jaundice and feeding issues. So then you look at from the labor and delivery perspective. So now we're sending a mom delivers vaginally, let's say, and some of the insurances don't even cover 48 hours. 
in 48 hours, the milk probably hasn't come in, in most likely case it hasn't come in. And now you're sending a mom home. If it's a new mom, they don't know anything about breastfeeding or they're learning. If a second or third time mom, they actually have a higher chances of their milk coming in. But there is this discrepancy that is occurring. Um, and so, yeah, and that's where the idea of a postpartum clinic came up. And actually, it's not a new idea at all. A lot of European countries do this. A lot of um, Australia does this. Japan does this. And it is an evidence-based um, clinic based on those research that has been done in those countries. So how did you get your business started? Let's talk about the logistics of starting from the ground up. Yes. So I actually started it two years ago. And initially, because it was such a a novel idea for this area as well, it's like, okay, I wanted to work as a lactation specialist and see, and here's the other thing. I've never worked. I've Coming to Denver, I've never trained here, so I just didn't know the layout for the pediatric groups here. So I didn't want to step on anybody's toes, and I still don't. Um, so I worked as a lactation specialist because I just wanted to see where, like, just look at the market first. And I was realizing that I was hired as a lactation specialist out of pocket. It was, they, people were willing to pay for it. And once I added the MD part of it, it's like, yes, I'm a lactation specialist, but I'm an MD. People were willing to pay even little more because now they're getting an expertise behind it as well. And for the first year, I just noticed that a lot, the pediatricians would keep asking the babies to come back in for a weight check, come back in for a weight check in that first week of life. And the first week of life is very it's very precious because breastfeeding needs to be established and you can't just keep having a mom keep coming back for just a simple weight check. And it was, it, that's all they need. That's like, literally they can do it at home. Why can't they do it at home and not record it? And obviously it's a liability issue, right? So it was like, okay, so first starting the business, I had to learn my market and I had to learn what was out there. And then I realized people are paying for lactation specialists out of pocket. So why wouldn't they not pay for me out of pocket when I can provide a little bit more and save them a trip to their pediatrician? So in September, February of last year, um, I actually opened, officially opened the clinic, but I really didn't do anything till September because I wanted a summer off. <laughs> I was just like, I'm tired of working. I want a summer off. <laughs> Clearly you're entitled. You've, you've paid your dues. Yes. <laughs> so, so yes. Um, and the other thing is that, so you, you need to know your market. And the second thing is my market is the birthing world here. I, I'm still doing, and I still do a lot of networking. I do it with the doulas. I do it with midwives um, because they actually, a lot of patients will go to them first or will we'll search them and then come find me because it's the same kind of line of thinking that they have. Um, and those have been the birth, birthing community really has helped me propel more of the traction behind the clinic. This so, might be incorrect, but when I hear midwife, when I hear doula, I think home birth. So are you now 
the first um, pediatrician to see these kids in the, in that situation? Is that is that some of what you're seeing? Is these home births? No, actually, the most of Colorado. I mean, it's a mix, but they have birthing centers here as well. And in the state of Colorado, the midwives are actually capable under their um, license to do the whole first week visit. And they just need a pediatrician at the one week mark. So that's where I'm actually fitting into that realm. The ones that go through the hospital are finding me through Google ads, finding me through social media. And those are the ones that I see for their um, hospital discharge visit. And then the two week, and then thereafter, they see their pediatrician at one month. And how did that work in terms of malpractice? Because if you're just getting started and you're not taking any income yet, right? Cause mm-hmm. you don't, you know, you're, when you're at a place with no patients, um, you have to start paying malpractice insurance without any income. Yes. It's called a wow. debt. Yeah. <laughs> it's also called an invest, an owner's investment from your trauma yeah. husband. <laughs> I think I'm very fortunate in that sense that there is, I'm able to do it in that guys. And also, um, before I left the NICU, we had a lot of, um, moonlighting opportunities, which I took. So I knew I had, a. I actually invest, I knew I was going to invest something. So where's the, um, where it was going to be coming from. So even more so I took a lot more moonlighting opportunities just to have somewhat of a cushion before I got started. So and so then you look is... for credit card with zero percent for a year. <laughs> yeah. You do. You you have you just have to. <laughs> so. I did. I did. I think I did that in my last year of residency, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is I think what everybody tells. It's the complete opposite of all the rest of the teaching, which is live like a resident for as long as you can. I, I tried to start living like an attending while I was still a resident. Yeah. Accumulating yeah. not a good idea. Okay. <laughs> no. So, okay. So if you had one thing that you one piece of advice that you'd like to impart to people that are, that are thinking of starting their own niche practice, what would it be? What maybe a mistake that you made or something that came out well that you think, man, I think this is the type of thing that should be taught in med school. Um, know your market. Like my market is, and know your network. So those are the two important things. So I learned my market and it took me, and I'm still learning it. I knew that people are paying for lactation specialists. I knew what their rates were. So I, I made myself more reasonable. I didn't say I wanted to be not a concierge service to be looked upon because concierge always um, has a notion of that's a lot of money that I can't spend. But then I know like in this market what a lactation person costs. And if I just add, you know, 30 to $50 more, then people, will, people still will use me. Um, and I'm still getting my mission to improving postpartum care out. And know what community you have to network with. Because for me, the birth community is a huge and powerful resource that has been in existence before I even started this. And there are people in there that have so many more connections than you would ever imagine. Um, yeah. So those would be the two things. And how did you network with them? Did you have like you take people out for dinner? Did you have a meet and greet at a 
like I, I just I wouldn't know where to begin aside from just like liking people on like LinkedIn or or something you know something like that. How how do you how did you get out and meet people? Um, picked up the phone, called them up, and said, "Hey, this is what I'm doing because they like it aligns with their values also. So you have to pick you have to also pick groups that align with your values. And I'll get to, I'll elaborate a little more on that too in just a second. But it really is picking up the phone and saying, this is what I'm doing. These are the, we're, we have a connection here. Let's just meet. And I've, I've, what happens is you meet a lot of people. You have coffees with them. You do, like for the midwifery groups, I've actually done talks at their place with them. So then they get to start to get to know me as well. Then that's where the referrals hopefully will start and have started coming in through. And then the birthing community here, what they do is there's two things that's happened for me. For one, for the Colorado surrogacy, the surrogacy part here, I'm their only pediatrician listed on their website. So that's kind of really neat. So that's a different niche. And secondly, the community here every annually has a huge meet and greet. And I was invited to that and go and behold, I actually knew 20 to 30% of the people already there. And then they started introducing me to other people. And they're like, oh, you really have to meet this doctor. She's doing something really novel that will fit your um, clientele. Um, and then the other community is go beyond that because I actually will look at Women's Foundation and because their mission is to improve women's care um, and economical and financial and healthcare in a spectrum. And I went to them and said, hey, how can we do this? And in May, they have a, they, they're a nonprofit, but they have um, a gala with, not, with donors that come out and will start supporting a cause. And so then my name will be listed on there as well. So some would think outside the box too, because that was something that I was like, well, a women's foundation wants better care for women. So I know their their values align with mine. So sometimes sitting uh, sitting thinking outside the box is really helpful too. Oh. Yeah, very very busy, very active. That's that's some fantastic advice on uh, on marketing yourself and and networking. But yeah. and that's what I wanted to talk to you about, but you wanted to be on the podcast to talk about breastfeeding because you want to educate physicians in general about what we should all know about breastfeeding. Now, as an otolaryngologist, I, I sometimes see kids within their first couple of days of life because there are difficulties breastfeeding because of a tongue tie. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I have a, a fairly large pediatric, I'm a general ENT, but I have a fairly large pediatric practice. So I, I see that quite a bit, but that's kind of the beginning and the end of what, what I see. So let's put you in a hypothetical circumstance where you have one of the uh, University of Colorado med students rotating with you for a week or two, and you don't know what specialty they're going into. They could go into anything. What is it that you would want them to take away from breastfeeding? Yes. Um, so to step back with all of this, I don't want you to know the mechanism of breastfeeding. That's not where this is going to go. That part is if you are interested in it and it falls in your realm, like if you're a pediatrician, family practice, OB, and that's something that you want to explore more, 
by all means. And we're not even going to dive into that, but that, because that's not what I want anybody to know. For a medical student, I want them to know that this is a public health issue, breastfeeding is. And it ties into directly whatever specialty they're going to go into, we as physicians are affected by the cost of healthcare. We see it every day. We see that, you know, we, we spend more time charting notes because we're trying to get reimbursement. We see hospital care costs increasing, increasing. And why, when you start from the basics of preventive medicine, and we know if we do preventive medicine, it saves breastfeeding dollars. I mean, sorry, it saves um, healthcare dollars. And breastfeeding is a public health issue because of two reasons. One, the mom. It has shown, and there's research to back that up, that it reduces risk of type 2 diabetes in mothers, and also it reduces the risk of ovarian and breast cancer. So those are two huge, two huge things that you might see as an internal medicine person or um, a breast surgeon or a gyne gynecologist. You're going to be somewhat affected by that. Then secondly, for the baby, and obviously there's, we've all heard it, it reduces ear infections. It reduces cold in the first year. It reduces the likelihood of asthma. It, in, um, it protects them from type 1 diabetes and ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and the list kind of goes on. And so in those terms, there's actually studies been done that if you are supportive of a breastfeeding mom and it becomes a public health issue, we can save about $13 billion in healthcare cost. That's huge, <laughs> you know? And healthcare cost should be a priority for every physician. So that's one. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Secondly, you don't need to know anything about breastfeeding. Know your resources. And the one resource is called Lactmed. That's one. That's an online, um, it's online. And what you do is you put in a medication and see if it's compatible with breastfeeding. So for example, and this is why I think we are talking, is my husband is a trauma ortho surgeon. And he had a mom who was had a one-month-old, but was in a car accident and ended up having some pelvic um, injuries that he got involved in. And that mom was, for in her mind, she still has to provide milk for a one-year-old, right? I mean, for her one-month-old. And obviously, during surgery and during recovery, there was so much medication pumped into her that there was no way that milk was good was going to be good for the baby. So that's that's where all this is thing. And so what happened? It's like he didn't know what where to go. And I was like, well, who is your lactation specialist in your hospital? And they're mostly an adult hospital, so they don't have one. And then secondly, he was asking me about drugs being compatible with breastfeeding. And I was like, well, LACMED is a good source. And now all his PAs know that source. So they went back to her and they said, listen, we understand that this is important to you. However, these medications are not compatible with breastfeeding, but we will get you to a point where you can pump again and nurse your baby. 
And that's all you needed, right? The empathy part of it. So the other thing so is two, like there, there are two points I just want to yeah. uh, go back to. One is, did you really ask an orthopedic surgeon who the lactation consultant for the hospital yes. was and genuinely expect yes. an answer? No, but I wanted him to think. <laughs> okay. And two was what is what was that website again? It's LactMed. It's L-A-C-T-M-E-D. Okay. Yeah. I think I think that research, which I was not aware of, right? As yep. now as a, an otolaryngologist, I see lots of sinus infections and you know, we're we're constantly putting people on antibiotics or steroids and that is a common question that I get. And every time I get it, I have to look the medication up in, you know, on the EMR. And it, I, I, I was not aware that this resource was available and I, I will definitely be using it starting tomorrow. So thank you yeah. for that. Lactmed.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or just Google it. I forget it was .com yeah. or dot .whatever, but just Google it. And it's a great, not, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, just you don't need to know anything about breastfeeding. Just know your resources. You know, that's that was it. Um, and then this idea of empathy. So why is that so important? Because breastfeeding has been for a mom, if you read a new mom, old mom, whatever type of mom, if you read it, you can see we've had a pendulum shift in our culture because we know we don't like to stay in the middle. We always have to go either all the way to one side or all the way to the other side. And being in the middle seems very um, unnerving for our culture. So what happened with breastfeeding in our society was in the 50s and 60s, formula was introduced and formula was pushed. And a lot of women did not breastfeed for multiple reasons. And then what we started noticing in the 80s and 90s was that we were losing the benefits of breastfeeding. And then we started getting lactation specialists and we started getting a big wave of now, I mean, people do call them sometimes lactation Nazis, that you have to breastfeed, you have to breastfeed, there's no other way to do this. And now you get a mom in this day and age where there's a generational gap of knowledge about breastfeeding because in most likely cases her mom didn't breastfeed her so the knowledge has not been transferred to the mom and then on the second those one other arm you're getting a lactation specialist who's just might be forcing their views on this mom and on the third arm it's societal views it's like oh my god you're not breastfeeding like why are you not breastfeeding and if you take breastfeeding the contents of human evolution, we've had wet nurses, we've had milk sharing, and you don't know what kind of a breastfeeding mom you're going to be until you start the process. So this whole idea that formula is bad and supplementation is bad is is very outdated, I guess I'd have to say it. We're just very lucky to live in a country where we can have fresh water to, you know, to mix our formula with. But milk sharing and wet nurses exist in developing countries. And a mom who's chosen to breastfeed is, her struggles might be internal, but just saying, wow, you're doing a really good job, or just acknowledging the fact that she's doing it is is monumental in that mom's mind. And I think any physician who comes across, for example, a plastic surgeon 
two needs, you know, for there's a handful of moms who get diagnosed, unfortunately, with breast cancer. And I have a couple of friends who were diagnosed while they were breastfeeding to be like, you did a great job up to this point. Um, but let us, you've done wonderful. Your baby's gotten exactly what it needs, but now let's start taking care of you. So I think I could go on and on. So I apologize yeah. if I'm rambling. Well, no, 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 no. I think, <laughs> I think you're, you, you kind of, you mentioned it, but, but I, I do want to reiterate it because it relates to um, Alison Escalante is a pediatrician that I interviewed, I think it was two episodes ago, and she talks about the should storm, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, that we have to be aware of, right? Because you should breastfeed, you should, bre right? Like, but there are some mothers who aren't able to for a multitude of reasons or simply don't want to. And so you're right, it is in uh, our, in their best interest to try to, um, but we also have to be wary about how hard we really push it and try and not to shame them into doing it or make them think that they're bad parents for not doing it. You were, you were getting to that a bit in, uh, in, in what you were saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's really important to tell them and educate them and support them in any way we can. And right. in, in uh, as prescribing physicians, we have to make it as easy for them as possible and support them as much as possible. But at the same time, you're right. The pendulum swings in one direction and the other. Before it was better living through chemistry. I think that's like Dupont or um, something like that. And so they were pushing formula. Now it's in the other direction. So it's just the onus is on us to just educate and support and educate and support. Right. And then the fourth point about breastfeeding, and every medical student is going to get see this at one point in the. Please support your colleagues who are working physician moms who are coming back to work and pumping and be supportive in the sense of you know not i mean there's so many instances not only i mean nothing's really personally happened to me but i've heard is the medical community and professionals who are supposed to be supporting the outside community about breastfeeding and they make they might make snark remarks like oh she's pumping again or oh you know oh she's she's not she's doing that again and from personal experience i i tell you i pump at my i pumped at my desk while doing my notes i have pumped i have not pumped for 7 hours straight because i was taking care of a icu baby that needed me and so we make the, our first priority when we come back as physicians is to our job. And sometimes our baby's needs get on the back burner, which is totally fine by us. Like those are our choices that we're making, but please be supportive of us in those roles. If we do need those 10 to 15 minutes to breastfeed instead of being, and if there's nothing going on and that's how we have allotted, like I said, I used to do my notes, you know, hand them a, hand them a Snickers bar, hand them water, just remind them, or just be like, Hey, good job doing that. I just had a recent incidence where in one of my physician mom blogs um, on Facebook, one of the moms, it's a closed group. And one of the moms mentioned that she was discreetly pumping in a meeting and pumps have come this far that you can you don't need to be hooked up into 
um, an electric pump, meaning to the outlet or anything like that. They're so discreet that you can put them underneath your shirt and nobody really knows that you're pumping except for a small amount of noise. And that noise can be muffled. I mean, it's, it's, you have to like kind of listen for it. And that's how sophisticated breast pumps have become. But she was actually told that she was being inconsiderate of everybody around her. Though it was underneath the shirt, you could barely hear it, and there was no visible evidence of the fact that she was actually pumping. But they were just aware of it, and they kind of breast-shamed her. And it's kind of really disheartening that we can't look in within our community ourselves and be supportive of our own um, peers in that way. As medical professionals, yeah. I mean, we yeah. we didn't have our kids until after, well after I was done with residency. So, and it's so hard, but I have no idea how you can have children and complete a residency program at the same time. It might just incredible it's an incredible feat and so my my hat goes off to you and yes any support that that we can give from the medical community you make an excellent point we we should give we should be um internally as supportive as we are at least as we claim to be externally right right and so that's all i those are the points i wanted to make so uh, some excellent points, excellent resources, LactMed. I'm definitely going to be using that going forward. That'll make, make my life a lot a lot easier and help me with patient care. And some excellent pointers if you're going to be starting your own business. So Dr. Sonal Patel, where can people find you online? I am on Instagram for Naya Care. That's N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E. On Facebook for Naya Care Colorado, N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E Colorado. And then my website is nayacare.org, N-A-Y-A-C-A-R-E.org. Naya means renewal and sunshine. And it was always my girl's name. And I have four boys. So I figured, <laughs> hey, I'm going to name my business as my baby. So I've heard you say that before, and I love that story. Yeah, <laughs> that's where it comes from. So. Well, thank you for, very much for talking to us today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. We can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is produced by Guilfrey Studios in New York City. You can find them at guilfreestudios.com. Our theme music was written by our show's producer, voice actor, Karin Guilfrey.